passage of Scripture that draws our hearts, our minds, our souls to the cross of Jesus Christ is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 down through verse 4. Romans is such a powerful book, isn't it? And of all the chapters in Romans, the one that seems to be the most beloved among people is Romans chapter 8. When I was considering possibly that God was calling me into a different realm than where I was headed, and that uh, God wanted me to be a pastor, there was a physician by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and his expositions on Romans are second to none. And it spoke to my heart about the way in which God was directing my own personal life. And verses 1 through 4 speak to that very idea of the cross of Jesus Christ. As we turn there, it's our means, our way of preparing for the bread and the cup that we're going to be able to participate in experience in just a few moments. So we're pausing in this series in Second Chronicles, and we're picking it up here for our communion meditation on chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, the book of Romans, where now Paul writes these words for you. And he writes these words for me. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, Mark this now. God did. See the initiative there? God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. So we're going to ask God to give us insight as we're looking into these words because these words are His words and we want to be able to understand them well. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And our fathers are coming into Your presence. We want to turn this study into a, a communion meditation. We want each word and each phrase to inch us, drive us, pushes towards that cross. Because the natural tendency of humanity is to shy away from it. But Father, it's there where you confront the sinfulness of sin through the holiness of Christ. And that moment in history where that collision took place, Christ was victorious. when he said, it is finished. And then three days later, you, the Father, validated that statement by raising him from the dead. And so, Father, what we want to do whenever we are as a congregation coming together for the sake of communion is to allow your word to give insight to our minds and our hearts regarding what it is that we're doing. What is the significance of that bread? What stands behind the symbol of that cup? And in this message of your word, we pray that it will shed light upon this experience. 
as we look very carefully into the depths of our souls to make certain that all is well with our Lord. And so, Father, speak to us and allow this word to warm the hearts, engage the minds as we come here again to see Jesus and Him only. And we pray these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. There is this scene from the Washington, D.C. area that stands out in my mind when it comes to a passage such as this. To create the scene, what you need to recognize is a flight that has made its way from Florida to the Washington, D.C. area. But right before it's able to land, lo and behold, something has gone wrong with the engine. The plane dives into the Potomac. It's chilly waters, cold waters, and life to be lost is ready to be ready to take place. When out of the blue comes this helicopter. And as this rescue helicopter is attempting to ladder lift the survivors. Suddenly, there is this lone man. Can you picture this? Can you envision this? And he dives into the frigid water, and he hoists five people onto the ladder, and then disappears beneath the waters. It was the caption to that scene in a particular newspaper out east that caught my attention. Quote, He gave his life for those he did not know. Unquote. And I took that, clipped that, tucked it in a file. And underneath wrote, and Christ gave his life for those he did know. He knows my sinful nature. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our objectives. He knows our plans. He knows our past. He knows our present. He knows. And yet he's still willing to take the plunge and die in our place for us. Now this is an astounding thing, which leads us right away into this passage of Scripture that we are allowing for God to use as a source of meditation, preparing our minds and our hearts for the bread and for the cup. What I want to do with you is to simply develop two what I'll call significant meditation aspects these verses that I think have direct bearing upon the way in which we receive the bread and the cup in a way that would really and truly honor our Lord. Now the first is found in verses 1 and 2, and we're going to phrase it like this. Meditate, first of all, upon the privileges here of salvation. We're going to look at the aspects of salvation here, but... In particular, what I want you to see with me are two significant privileges that stand out in just these first two verses. Now we're going to have to read 
slowly, reflectively, take it personally, engage ourselves as he starts with this significant statement. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let's stop right there. If you are in Christ Jesus, and we're going to get to that in just a second, the first significant privilege that God has given you and given me is that there is now no condemnation. Do you see it there? That's your first privilege. Notice that it begins with this word, therefore. The word, therefore, continues to show up again and again throughout the writings of Paul in the book of Romans. In particular, I think of chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, therefore, talks about the positive aspects of Romans 8.1. Justification. Which means simply that you and I, if we are in Christ Jesus, it's because God has declared you and me righteous. I have not made myself righteous before God for God to simply then make a statement, look at the righteous one. No. What he has done is that he has allowed Jesus Christ to dive in full knowing of who I am and declares you and declares me righteous. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, this is a declaration by God, not an achievement of humanity. Now develop it a little further here. And notice it goes beyond the therefore. Therefore, there is now. Why now? Because Paul is saying that Jesus Christ has broke in. He dove into that setting on our behalf. So now he's able to speak concretely of this reality and of its relevance. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if Romans chapter 5, verse 1 tells me that the emphasis is upon justification, the first therefore, then this therefore in Romans 8 verse 1 is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And they're meant to balance one another. Clear justification, no condemnation, which means then as long as I am in Christ Jesus, I have this tremendous assurance that what Jesus Christ did on the cross is sufficient, complete, I can neither add to, nor can I subtract from. But I still got to ask myself the question, well, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? One of my favorite exercises at a very personal level of devotional life is to begin to ponder the various ways I relate to Jesus. Those of you who know a little bit about grammar, ponder this one with me. I'm still learning. What does it mean to go through Christ? 
as our mediator? What does it mean to stand on Christ? Our foundation. What does it mean to be under Christ? He's our Lord. What does it mean to live for Christ? My purpose. What does it mean to be like Christ? My example. And now, what does it mean to be in Christ? That's my life. He wrote these words. What does he mean? I know a man in Christ, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. You and I begin to ask ourselves, what kind of man, what kind of woman could be caught up to the third heaven? What does it take? Well, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, this is one who was in Christ. Now, to be in Christ does not mean that I am living in Him spatially, the way I am functioning right now in the midst of these four walls. It does not mean necessarily to be inside Christ. Rather, what it means is to be united with Christ in a very close personal relationship. You've got your shears, you've got your clippers, and maybe you approach one of those bushes in your yard springtime coming your way, so they tell me. And so you approach that particular bush and you're about to do some pruning and lo and behold, there is one already separated from from the bush. It's in the bush. Sitting there, that limb is, that branch is, among all the other branches. But it's not united to the trunk. It's not living. It may still appear so, but it's not so. And your mind immediately goes back to that very powerful imagery of John chapter 15. Abide in me and I in you, he said. For as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. So now, what communion forces me to do is to ask the tough question, am I in Christ? There's to be a union here. A living, growing relationship with Him. Because to be in Christ is to be in union with So I ask myself, what's the state of the union? Where am I at? And where are you at in this whole matter of being in Christ? Because if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation, and that is the first privilege given to you no matter what you've done in your life in the past. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't let the past condemn your soul. 
there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you abiding in Christ? Not a branch just laying there among the dynamic union of all the other branches, but one that is attached to the living source himself. Here's your second privilege. Not only are we told there is now no condemnation in verse 1, but furthermore, there is now true liberation in verse 2. Because through, or literally in the Greek, in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to set up a contrast here. Here it comes. The law of the Spirit of life, there's one. Set me free from the law of sin and death. There's the other. There's this tremendous conflict in this world, a tremendous contrast to the one who has the spiritual eyes open to what's happening in this world. There's the conflict and the contrast between the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. Now, I take the law of the Spirit of life as simply the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for my sins, another way of phrasing it, you see. Powerfully, the gospel then sets me free, liberates you and me from the law of sin and death, And now this contrast and conflict we see worked out on a daily basis. Life versus death, with its origins in the Garden of Eden, gets addressed thoroughly at the cross of Jesus Christ. And now the person who's able to partake of the bread and the cup says, I have two significant privileges that God has given me as one who is in Christ Jesus. There is, number one, no condemnation. There is, number two, true liberation. But you've got to be one who is in Christ Jesus. It was happening in Boston. Now, General Washington was consulting the leaders at that time about Was it wise and was it right to bomb the town? The Redcoats, the British, were inhabiting that region. He sends this letter, and it's read out loud by Mr. John Hancock. At first, there's silence. And then a member makes a motion that the group should resolve itself into a committee of the whole in order that Mr. Hancock might give his opinion since he owns significant property in Boston. Listen to this. This is rich. Leaving his chair, John Hancock addressed the committee with these words. It is true that nearly all of the property I have in this world is in the town of Boston. But if freedom is at stake for these people, I am willing to allow it to be destroyed for the sake of their liberty. 
You see where we're going with this? And now what God is willing to do is He is willing to allow His Son to experience condemnation so that we experience no condemnation. But that's not all. He balances the negative with the positive and says, not only do I have that to offer you participants of the bread and the cup, those who are in Christ Jesus, not only is there no condemnation, there is true liberation. I've come to set you free. The cross of Jesus Christ. You gaze at the bread and you ponder that cup. You look at that bread and say, there's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. You look at that cup and you say, there's true liberation for me to live for God according to Christ Jesus. Set me free from the penalty of my sin. Now once you and I have embraced this dual set, the privileges of salvation, then the other aspect that you and I need to meditate upon is the provision of salvation. So now we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 and we're going to methodically allow God to begin to speak to our hearts in the way in which Jesus Christ addressed our needs through that cross. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature now, you've underlined to this, haven't you? God did. Not Gary. Not you. Notice the initiative. Notice the action. Notice the proactivity here. God did. And now the provision of salvation begins to unfold for us. What are the provisions? First, God sent His own Son. Didn't send my Son. Didn't require my sons. God did by sending His own Son. This tells me then that it's the Father who takes the initiative but notice here, by using the phrase own, we see this very personal relationship of the Godhead. Now God who knows us and sends His Son to die for us, sends one He it belongs to, and the Son belongs to the Father. Notice then the relationship that's being established before our very eyes in this phrase that God sent, not we requested. God sent His own Son right to the side of that phrase. Initiative. It's God's, not ours. Ponder the scene. It's Don Richardson, and he's recalling an experience in his book entitled Peace Child. It's about the moving account of how the Sa'awi people of Irian Jaya came to understand salvation in Jesus Christ. 
He tells us for many months he and his family sought for some way to communicate the gospel to this tribe. And then they discovered the key which they have been praying for. They noted that all demonstrations of kindness expressed by these people were regarded with suspicion except for one. Just one act. If a father gave his own son to his enemy, his sacrificial deed showed that he could be trusted. And furthermore, Everyone who touched that child was brought into a friendly relationship with the father, the chief of that tribe. Now consider this global chief that we have. He has sent his peace child into this world. There's no guesswork here. He took the initiative. It's based upon grace, not based upon our works. But it involves a relationship with the Son, who has a relationship to the Father. So now you have marked the word initiative behind that first significant phrase, God sent His own Son. And that is a provision that speaks to us here in our communion context. But there's more. Notice the second aspect of this provision. God sent His own Son in the likeness of man. Do you see it there in verse 3? Let me read slowly. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature... God did. Not me. Not you. God did by sending His own Son. But now notice the next phrase. In the likeness of sinful man. Now notice that it does not say that He sent His own Son as sinful man. Does it? Nor does it say that he sent his own son in the likeness of man because he was true humanity. What you now see is both the, hu the sinlessness aspect of Jesus Christ and the whole aspect of the Bethlehem experience tied to Christ. God sent His own Son in the likeness of man. That explains again the idea of the virgin birth. doesn't say in the likeness of man. He was true humanity. Therefore, He was conceived of, of Mary. But it doesn't say sinful man because He was also conceived via the agency of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the brilliance here of the phrasing that emerges? God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful humanity, you see. 
there's the Bethlehem story. The humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ wrapped up in that one little phrase. Why does he do this? Why does God send his own son? Fully divine, yet fully human. We need a third phrase to come out for us. God sent his own son to be a sin offering. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So now, the purpose of Bethlehem's Calvary. There was a purposeful Christmas tied to this. And it was to link Christmas to Good Friday, which links itself to Easter, which links itself to the ascension of Christ. There's linkage happening here as you connect your dots. And there is purposefulness. And there is sacrifice here. And there is substitution here. He came to be a sin offering. He came for sin. Now, right when you think you've got your arms around this thing, he's got still more to say because here comes a fourth aspect of the provision. God condemns sin in sinful man, and now I've put in parenthesis in the flesh, the flesh of the humanity of Jesus. Because at the end of verse 3 it reads, and so he condemns sin in sinful man. Literally, he condemns sin in flesh. You see. The humanity of Christ. Now, do you see the word condemned? And so he condemns sin? Now, draw an arrow back up to that opening phrase in verse 1. There is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And at the end of verse 3, he condemns sin in the sinful man. Therefore, Jesus in his sinless state takes our condemnation so that us who are in this sinful state hear the words, no condemnation. This is beautiful. Are you linking? Are you pulling these thoughts together? He wants 1 and 3, verses 1 and 3, to be the thread that that emerges in your understanding of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. Here is this sinful man, and God is saying to him, no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. And I say, I'm in Christ Jesus because Jesus Christ took my condemnation in my place as my substitute. And you gaze at that bread and you gaze at that cup of the initiative of your gracious God. What do I do with this, you're asking? To be in Christ is to be in union with Christ. Out of our union with Christ comes communion with Christ. And so now, he gives us a purpose statement for our everyday living. If you're wondering what you're to be all about day in, day out. In verse 4, 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature. Contrast coming. But according to the Spirit. Your fifth aspect of provision. God sent His own Son so that we might live according to the Spirit. You see? Not according to the sinful nature. And so the moral law is there as God's measure, God's standard. I can't keep it in my flesh, but by the Holy Spirit working operative within my life, I now have a standard by which I can measure my holiness, my purposefulness, the standards that God wants me to live by in accordance with God's will. God sent His own Son so that we might live according to the Spirit. And so now I get it. I couldn't keep the law. Christ comes and dies on my behalf. No condemnation for the sinner because he's in Christ. The sinless one takes the condemnation. He is Christ. True liberation is produced. And out of this now, I've just examined just two verses alone, three and four, five significant provisions that have to do with the bread and the cup and how they relate to me personally. And I think about that man. He gave his life for those he did not know. And here's Jesus, all-knowing, who gives his life for those he knows. And the sinless one dies for the sinful ones. And He knows all, yet loves you, and did it anyways. And you praise God for it. And this is exactly what we do, Father. We praise you for it. For who you are. For what you've done. For the no condemnation, for the true liberation. So we look at the bread and we hear privileges echoing in our ears. Gaze into the cup and awed by the provisions, awed by the provisions that come from you. You know us. Christ died for us. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.